Keisha Bisram, and you're listening to the Every Shade Podcast. My next guest is Kay Laurel Manning. Laurel is an award-winning writer, director, actor, and musician who works in both film and theater. Laurel has an MFA in film from Columbia University and a BFA in drama from the University of Georgia. His first feature film, Happy New Year, based on his critically acclaimed play and award-winning short film of the same name, had its world premiere at the 2011 South by Southwest Film Festival and has screened at over two dozen film festivals. The film won multiple awards in the US and abroad and was officially released by the Snag Films in 2013. Most recently, Laurel wrote and directed three short films for the Guggenheim Studios, The Great Love Rosemary, Pure, and My Father's Heart. He's currently prepping for more upcoming productions. However, in today's interview, we focus on Awake, a critically acclaimed play that he has directed and starred in. Awake received its world premiere at the Bauer Group in January 2019. The play is a series of vignettes seeping into different lives of people in America, facing issues surrounding racism, immigration, privilege, and anything you could think of that has risen to the surface in the past couple of years. The End Connection, a story about an interracial couple where the black woman overhears her white boyfriend's uncle using the N-word without a second thought. This leads to an argument between the two without a resolution. The Date, Susan, who works for a not-for-profit, goes on a date with Matt, a Wall Street trader. Susan complains about her co-worker's job performance, and she happens to be a black woman. Matt begins to pour out his honest racist point of view once he hears about the woman's racial background. Saving Souls, a Latina mother is in a parent-teacher meeting due to her son presenting a factual class report on Hitler that has upset other students and their parents. Mrs. West, the teacher, tries to explain to Bertina that the school promotes diversity and tolerance among its students while aiming to force an apology from the mother and passively threatening to revoke the student's financial aid. The Interview, a well-respected black preacher is waiting for a friend at a coffee shop. An enthusiastic black college student approaches him and starts a casual conversation to suddenly reveal a confrontational secret that ties the preacher to the church's position in the LGBTQ community. A and J rule the universe. Alex and Jeremy are a couple of typical teenage boys driving around while eating fast food and sharing silly stories of urban legends and probably false sexual conquests. However, as the story goes on, the reason for their car ride becomes clear and disturbing to the audience. The future. Similar to the adolescents of Alex and Jeremy, Jennifer and Max are the typical big sister and kid brother duo as they banter about Beyonce and school teachers. But over time, we learn about the heartbreaking and disturbing facts of their mother's disappearance and the emotional realization of where they're heading. Carlos the Protector. A tough cop talks about his tragic interference in an abusive situation while being criticized, only to be criticized again at the very end of the monologue. Flowers. Cynthia, a black woman, joins an all-white women's film discussion group in an upscale gated community. Cynthia tells the story of the racially explosive events that ultimately leads her to her arrest and to the anger management group she's presently in. Hands. Probably the most hopeful vignette of Awake. A New Jersey store owner and community leader, also an immigrant from the Middle East, turns around her troubled relationship with the neighborhood kids and makes a positive difference in their lives. So, Laurel, um, yeah. 
I just want to say thank you for actually hopping on this interview with me because I I created this podcast because during this whole COVID, um, you know, respect of what's going on this year, I actually launched my YouTube channel back in March when the quarantine just started. <laughs> I watched some of the videos you were making, like you were, yeah. were you making stuff? You were like, I was trying it to was a cooking channel, was it? Yeah, or, yeah. It, it yeah. was basically like a, a, a satire, um, kind of like a skit of like making fun of uh, the expectations of, of women, but yet the reality of what we do, but also yeah. that um, the reality of what women go through on a day-to-day basis is actually not supposed to be seen as something that's abnormal. So things kind of went down south and like, um, it took me a while to like bounce back up and I thought, what can I do to continue working? Because I felt, I just felt like I needed to exercise my practice, you know? Yeah. And um, I'm like, you know, I know a lot of cool people who've done so much work and it's like, I can just do a podcast and just talk to them and talk about their process and everything. Um, and you were definitely on, a, like, on my list because I know you've done so much in your past. And on top of that, like you've done Awake. And the funny thing is I, I've been asking artists, you know, what, what project do you want to talk about? And when I'm emailed you, I'm like, I hope you want to talk about Awake. <laughs> no, I want to talk about this project I did in high school. <laughs> You know, <laughs> really changed my life, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. Boring. Yeah. <laughs> I remember when you first started Awake um, back in like 2016. Were you there? Yeah, you were there. Did you go to the, you went to the readings, right? The, the very, like, first few when you yeah, yeah. started drafting. Oh, yeah. yeah very, very early on, yeah. It was like back yeah. in 16, I believe, in the very end of the year. Were you one of the actors that came to my apartment and... Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I can remember that initial group. I think I, yeah, I think I thanked you in the program, I think. Yeah, I yeah think. It, was, it was very, it was in the very, like, yeah. early stages. And, yeah. Um, I just remember it going, I remember it, you also, uh, I remember the end connection was also part of like another, like, short. Um, like, yeah, that's like, actually what started the whole awake thing, you yeah. know. Um, um, that, um, my mentor, from my Columbia days, uh, Lenorda Coven. Um, she was my, my acting teacher at Columbia. I had, and I went to film school, but they wanted, I, I was an actor before I went to film school, but, um, cause I'd studied acting undergrad and playwriting. And then I went to film school. And so what they, you know, I thought it was very wise of them to have directors teach, you know, take acting classes. So no one is like in front of the camera. So she was my acting teacher and I, I continued my acting while I was at Columbia acting these downtown plays or whatever. So we've stayed tight, very close, um, even at Columbia while I was there and afterwards. And so, you know, having coffee or she'd read a script and give me feedback, that kind of thing. So she had this workshop of writer directors that she's has been going she taught out of her apartment on the upper east side for like i don't know 20 30 years i think and i could never go because i was always um busy or working or teaching but she had this festival she was going to retire and she's like probably 91 92 now i just spoke to her a couple of weeks ago and she said you know it's time for me to i just want to rest now so she she had this she wanted to go out with a bang and you know finally retiring um so she put in this festival called the R plays and it was about the R word being racism and she wanted she commissioned me asked me to write a play um about anything I wanted to I had to do some with some form of racism so um I couldn't think of anything because there's so many things I wanted to write about so then this idea came to me based on an event that happened in my own life and I wrote the in connection and it's basically 
about an interracial couple who are very close and they're going, it's a white man and a, a black woman and they're going to uh, Matt and Melanie and they're going to, they're getting ready to go to Matt's um, uh, celebration of Matt's uh, cousin graduating from college. It's like a dinner party or something like that at a restaurant or something. And um, they have gotten a gift for him. Um, and Melanie is very tight with Matt's family. So, Matt's uncle calls and, um, and Melanie steps out for a second to go get the mail downstairs and he puts him on speakerphone um, and he's getting dressed and somewhere in the conversation um, they talk about the, the gift that Melanie got for the, the uh, I can't even remember the kid's name in my own script but anyway they talk about the gift the secret gift they got him it's something he's always wanted so um she comes back in and I get, he wanted some kind of Yeezys or something. Yeah, that's what he wanted. But they've been sold out everywhere. But Matt had a connection. Melanie had a connection somewhere. And the uncle goes, oh, did he get, she get those Yeezys and, you know, whatever. And um, he, she uses, he, you know, she probably got some in connection in the hood or something. Is that how she got them? Jokingly, in the joking manner, he uses the N-word. And Matt doesn't correct him. And um, Melanie overhears this. And then she, you know, um, coughs a bit and let him know that she's back in the um, apartment and uh, Matt quickly hangs up the you know wraps up the call and says oh we'll see you in a bit and so he doesn't say anything he doesn't know what she heard or anything he just wants to ignore you know that what just happened so she eventually they go on like you know getting ready and everything and then she casually asks him um, about what was said on the phone and they have a whole big discussion about it about the use of the n-word and Matt's excuse is like, you know, he grew up in a different, my uncle grew up in a different time and that word was used. He doesn't use it all the time. He just uses it sometime. It's not a big deal. And she's like, it is a big deal. And I have to go around these people. And that's what they're calling me behind their back. And he's like, no one's calling you that behind your back. So it's a big discussion about the use of the N word and how, when it's, um, who's permitted to say it and who's not. Um, and the argument is on both sides, but you know, Whatever. That's all I'll say. And that's basically the, and the, the play was a big hit at the festival. Um, huge hit. And, um, and I was encouraged by the response that I, um, that I write more plays dealing with um, current events or current uh, issues that are plaguing our, our culture right now. And so I began to write a series of other plays after the response to that play. And I came up with Awake and um, a series of plays or vignettes, if you want, and monologues that touched on everything from the use of the N-word to homophobia and the black community to climate change to the, Im to the immigrant um, issue to um, um, anti-Semitism to school violence and gun violence and so it was everything that was plaguing me that was keeping me up at night and that's why I called it awake and I sought not to have a solution to these my best to present I guess you would call it conversation starters um, for people to see these, themselves in this char these characters and I try my best to not take sides I would present present an issue and present both sides of it and a lot of the plays were very complex they dealt with more than one issue and um, thank God I had my uh, dramaturg Christine Serger to help me with editing so we did a reading in my apartment of the first round of plays of which you were part of Keisha and um, some other actors 
And then I proceeded to just um, fine tune them. We had several readings over the next two years and finally it was given an off-Broadway production by the Barrow Group in June of 2019. So um, yeah, so it, it was pretty fast if you think about it, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I decided to keep uh, the end connection in that group of plays because it started at all. It actually started off the show. It was the least, um, <laughs> it was a probably, <laughs> There was there was comedy in the piece and all the pieces, but it was like nervous laughter in a way. There was some laugh out loud moments, but um, in connection, stay with it. But that's where it started, basically, um, was, was with the R the R plays, and that was in I think that show was in 2017. I think, yeah, yeah, I, I yeah I remember I remember those those plays. I remember it yeah. was there. Um, yeah, and what's interesting about Awake is that it's it's so triggering yeah so relative at all at the same time it's like i feel like and i'm sure you you have this response too but i remember watching the full the full play of awake and just feeling all emotions happening at once you know like you just feel that you are these people but then you're not these people and deadly yeah. situations at the same time and it's just it's just really it's really scary also mm-hmm. how realistic that you've you've made it um i think one thing i want to ask you is about the actors that you have, um, mm. all the actors that you have are, are just so incredible. They're so, so yeah. incredible. And all of these issues, um, each of the, the plays are extremely triggering. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the process like working with these actors? Um, before we hired, we had a long, um, we had a series of readings. We had like three or four readings for over the span of like a year, year and a half. And a lot of the actors, when we went to the Barrow Group, um, um, I told a lot of the actors, I said, look, this is, a, this is an official production. They have final say on who gets cast because they're producing it. They're letting me direct and write and whatever. And so I was very, I'm always very honest with my actors and pay them, you know, you know, stipend when I could. And so, and I believe in doing that going forward, definitely. Um, starting from that piece. Well, I did that before, but um, so when we auditioned, first thing I'll say is that because it was a 15 member cast and that's crazy and off Broadway show 15 uh, member cast was crazy. And the bar group wanted to do it. At first we talked about possibly actors doubling up, but none of the pieces worked, you know, that way. It just didn't work. So we decided to just go for it, which means we had to have a limited contract or whatever, they decided to do with it and we auditioned people um then the actors who'd been with me for a year and a half came through i call them the callbacks the very final round and a lot of them were recast but some weren't um and they understood that so and they were fine with it um they just liked being a part of it anyway in any step of the process so when we i continued to work on the pieces um during rehearsal we would read them and I think it was Martin Scorsese or some famous director said 80% of uh, directing is casting. Mm-hmm. So number one, get the kick-ass actor that you want. And then someone who's going to give you their opinion, basically. That's how I like to cast. Um, who's going to work with you and collaborate. I like to look at everything as a collaboration. Yeah, I've built, I've I made the blueprint, which is a script. And now we're going to build this house together. So... Um, a lot of times we'd read through the scripts. Once people were cast, we'd read through them, whatever. And I'll just ask for, what are your thoughts? You know, 
And I had to create an environment where people were comfortable giving me their opinion um, without being fear of being um, fired or anything like that. And I was like, you're not going to be fired. I, I, may not he- I may not take all of your suggestions, um, but I just want to hear your thoughts because you're going to be playing this character. Um, is anything sound uh, untrue or inauthentic? And they would be very honest with me. And so they helped me shape the pieces. And most of the time, Christine, Christine, um, um, Christine Serker, my dramaturg, was in the room and she would uh, silently write notes and then we would have meetings and then I would uh, go and rewrite and then I would give it to her and then she'd give me her feedback and then I'd have some other friends read who were very well, readers of mine and give me their feedback and then we'd go back into rehearsal and give it to the actors. Sometimes I would have them improv a certain section if I was having issues with it and then I would take that and then put it in my own words. And so, um, it was a very collaborative process. So we had some really, really great actors. Um, I would say um, I, there was one South Asian um, actress, actor, um, who did a piece about racism between Blacks and uh, South Asians, which mm-hmm. I'd seen a lot in my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And um, before even auditioning people for that monologue, I had a lot of people from that community who were my friends read this piece and say, is this authentic? Do I have a right to write this or whatever? I'm just writing what I saw. And uh, so I did a lot of research and all of them said, this is fantastic. We, this does happen and we don't talk about it enough. So I'm glad you're writing it. So, but when I got that actor, um, she helped me even um, clean up even a bit more, you know? just in terms of how she spoke and she did all the research on the character herself and she would come back and say, I think we should say it this way, blah, blah, blah. And about 80% of the time I would say, yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. Other times, if I didn't agree, I would basically say, Hey, I need this to stay this way because of this, you know? Um, And then she would understand. So it was really, really collaborative and it was one of the most uh, amazing experiences of my life. I've never worked so hard on a show because I was writing and directing uh, nine pieces with 15 actors, um, rewriting as we went along, um, also having production meetings, and I was also starring in one of them. And I didn't want to star in it, but the artistic directors um, insisted that I do this one role because I'd done it in all the readings. And the only reason I did it in the readings was because I didn't want to deal with an extra actor. So I said, when it comes time to direct this, I'm going to ask somebody else so I could just sit back. But nope. They're like, nope, we want you to do this part. So I was like, okay, I'll do it. And so Christine Zirko actually directed that one uh, piece that I was in. Um, and I just became an actor. So it was a bit of a vacation for me in those rehearsals because I could just act, you know? Um, so that was the experience of it. And uh, we were in previews. We continued to just fine tune the pieces a bit more. And then once we opened, that was it. I didn't do any more changes mm, okay. to the script, you know? Okay. That, collaborate, that collaborative process is so amazing. And hearing yeah. that you it to get it to where it needs to be. You know, for each piece, I mean, uh, because there's nine, there's nine, there's nine little vignettes that's going. Yeah, on. yeah. It was like six uh, plays or little ten minute plays and three monologues. Yeah, oh, how, yeah. How did you? I mean, this is probably a loaded question. I mean, all my questions are pretty loaded, but yeah. um, you know, it's there's so many topics that are just have blown up so much in the past four years, and they're just yeah up. Uh, you know how how did you decide? 
or I guess, can you talk more about the process of de deciding what story to tell? Well, there were uh, 13, 14, maybe, no, actually 15 pieces that were written for it. And Christine and I basically narrowed it down to nine. Mm -hmm. we, there, was a, there was a Me Too piece that we, we desperately wanted in there, but it just wasn't ready. It was the last thing I wrote, and we took that out the very last minute. We even did, um, had auditions for that particular piece, and we just decided it wasn't ready. And uh, I was very proud of it, but I felt that it could be a longer, it should be a, a full play, maybe. A lot of them could be, you know. Some of the reviewers said that these could actually go on to be, on to be longer pieces if you wanted to. Um, but we took that one out for time and just because I just didn't have the time to really perfect it the way I wanted to. And the published version of it, which we're working on right now, will have the actual show, which would be the nine pieces, and plus, well, I call them the B-sides, the extra six pieces that didn't make the show. So if people want to do uh, a production of it, they can, you know, mix and match. But there are certain pieces that I will, will have to be in the show that I'll say you have to do. Um, and but you can exchange this piece for that other piece. So we covered so many topics. How did I do it? I all the issues. It was called awake, but uh, play on words. One um, reason it's called awake is because these were all the issues that were keeping me awake at night. You know, whether it's police brutality, which we're still seeing. Mm -hmm. um, don't get me started on that. Um, there was a cop monologue in it, and that was the hardest thing for me to write. Um, and I'll say why <laughs> later. <laughs> but uh, so sorry. I said, please do, because that's something I did want to ask as well. Yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a uh, monologue called Carlos the Protector. Mm. And it's from the point of view of a cop who has been accused of being a racist because he killed someone um, when he was on a domestic call. Uh, a woman was being abused, a black woman was being abused by her boyfriend. And she called the police and he abused her so badly that um, she had become basically hysterical. And it was a darkened room, and she was holding a um, uh, an object in her hand that had a reflection on it, and it blinded him a little bit. So he assumed it was a gun and just shot her. So it's written from the point of view of someone who is a really good guess and quote, quote unquote, good egg, but um, was just a victim of not a victim of a um, I don't know what's the right word to say this. He was just basically scared um, and didn't know what to do. It was his, his, his uh, life or hers. And she, um, and he jumped the gun, but I presented it in a way. So it's really gray. You don't know if he did it out of, uh, because he was, you know, um, he's had some uh, deep racism going on or because he was genuinely nervous and just fighting for, you know, protecting himself. Um, that was very hard to me to write because of all the things we see in the news, even up to this day. Um, um, and I, as a black man, have always had some kind of issue with policemen just because of the way I've been treated. And so it was very hard for me to get in the mindset of someone and actually feel any kind of empathy for them. Um, but that, I did it. And that was probably the, I found a way in. And I had some policemen um, that I knew read it. Um, if I'm writing about a, an occupation that I'm not familiar with, I try to befriend anyone in that occupation or, or find people that I know. Do you know a military person or you know a veteran or someone like this and that I could interview? And I try to interview them and then have them read the piece after 
um, in various stages once I get to trust them. And so I did, and they all said, this is pretty accurate um, in terms of how he laid out the story and everything. Um, and so you don't know if this guy's a good guy or a bad guy. And so you, and that was, I think that angered a lot of people because it felt, it, uh, I think some people felt that I was taking his side because I didn't make him automatically guilty. That was up to the audience to decide. Um, and my point at that time was to try and say, is there a gray area sometimes with these policemen and then that they are sometimes um, really are scared, but it's still, still no reason to shoot people, <laughs> riddle people with bullet holes. So um, that was very difficult for me to get in that person's head. Would I write that again? Probably not, you know, but I'm glad I did challenge myself to write that. And some people in the audience did appreciate that. And I made him Latino. Um, um, I made him a um, Latino cop. And uh, because I felt if it was a white cop, there was no way that we were going to see any kind of gray area on stage mm -hmm. with this guy at all. Mm -hmm. And um, so I made him Carlos. And so I did a lot of research on Carlos and met some Latino cops. Um, and so um, and interviewed them. And some of them, I interviewed several policemen for another project that I was working on, a film project, my second feature. And they opened up to me. And I was pretty horrified by some of the things they said to me. And that was really the seed was planted for Carlos because a way how they saw black and brown people, you know, I won't go into that, but it was pretty disturbing. And I had to sit there and not want, not <laughs> um, make a face or judge or anything just because I wanted them to open up even more to me. But I was horrified by some of the things they said to me and just how they look at people on the street and they're trained that way. And it's coming out now, several years later. Um, so, yeah, I'm glad that you brought up Carlos the Protector because I have to admit, when I when I watched Awake, I think that was the one monologue yeah. that I, I I had a hard time having empathy towards the character. But I didn't want you to, but I wanted you to say, well, maybe you know. <laughs> interesting about it because you mentioned gray area, and what's interesting yeah. about um, some vignettes of Awake, or maybe all of them, it does raise other issues other than police brutality yeah right because you mentioned that he's just scared and he's facing a situation that, that people don't understand that when you're mm -hmm. pushing a corner like there's there's so many levels of of yeah. uh, what policemen go through um and women too and it does raise you to question more than just police brutality which for me i mean i do have very strong opinions about it yeah. too. but there's so many other levels to it that we tend to forget and I think yeah. that, that like, you know, you introducing that makes you think about other issues that come into play other than what we see, you know, yeah. in media or in social media and things like that. And this was a situation in which I want to just tell a story about, uh, and some people got mad, mad at me for writing that, you mm -hmm. know, um, I had a friend who had an issue with it and he saw it the second time and he was like, you know, I actually like that monologue. Um, but it, it really angered me because I was like, are you taking the side of the cops? I'm like, no, I'm not. But I'm not, um, uh, you know, my beliefs or whatever my, you know me very well, rather. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to present another side mm -hmm. and see if I could do it. And I did. And so it got people talking. It really, really did. Of uh, And at the end of the monologue, he basically 
I think he's, we don't decide who he's talking to. It could be a therapist or it could be review board or whatever. And someone asks him if, would you have treated this woman the same way if she were white? And he repeats the question and he gets really angry, which I'm not going to say anything, but the, that fact that he gets angry at that question and he almost jumps out of his seat should say more than, it should say it enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but I let the audience decide what they <laughs> Well, um, <laughs> I, do, I do want to ask, because I, I do know what your, your opinions and your beliefs are when it comes to politics. Um, you know, you do have these, these characters such as Carlos the Protector, A&J Rule Universe, and um, was it Matt from The End Connection? Yeah. Um, also, well, I don't want to say, the date was kind of a different character, but <laughs> I guess like you, you give these characters uh, a very strong point of view. Yeah. And a very like three-dimensional point of view. They're not just flat characters who are just racist, blatantly racist or like, you know, blatantly yeah. there's there's that- more, they have like their opinions and like, you know, they're they're very three-dimensional. Like I th- I guess what I want to ask you as a writer, like how cuz you just said that you did have difficulty writing Carlos the Protector. Yeah. What was the process like of writing these characters that go against your beliefs? Um um and the date, which is a uh, white corporate businessman um, having dinner with a, a white, uh, I guess you would call liberal type uh, woman. Um, and over the course of the dinner or their four, I think it's their fourth date or fifth date. can't remember. Uh, she discovers how racist he was. And, uh, you know, um, it's just an abuse of like um, black and brown people in corporate America. So, I wanted, I needed to flesh out that character because my goal with the piece was not to just, a lot of times when we go to see plays um, where you see the racists on stage, they're so overblown mm. and not relatable or, you know, okay, that's the, and so a white person sitting there going, okay, that's not me. So I wanted to present a show where a white liberal could go to a play and go, yeah, okay, I recognize this guy. Yeah, I know that guy. Yeah, I work with that guy. Um, and then he says something else. You go, wait a minute. I've had those same thoughts. What does that say about me? So that was my goal. Mm. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> so it wasn't just for the white liberal audience, but when I wrote those characters, that's what I was going for. Can you see yourself at all in any of these people on stage? And if so, what are you going to do about it? So, um, so it was very important for me to get the quote unquote other side, I guess. And so... I, one of the things about me as a researcher is that I'm non-judgmental when I'm trying to get work. So I'll get people to talk, I'll open up. Um, and I've been doing that for years uh, since my first feature film. Um, put people at ease so I'm not, don't, they don't feel like they're being judged. And so I have a lot of, I guess, conservative, straight conservative friends and some really far left friends. Um, not as close to them now, um, but um that I grew up with down South. And mm-hmm. so when I go home, we hang out, you know, we can't, we don't talk about politics. We talk about it a little bit because uh, we we'll get into discussions and it gets heated, but we'll talk about movies. We'll talk about, you know, um, uh, books or anything we've read or, or music. Um, and strangely enough, they all love hip hop. It's yeah. Um, so, and so, and I'm doing research, Search and um, and also hanging out with people that I knew, and so occasionally once we get more comfortable, I'll start talking about you know I guess things that are uh, relevant 
um, whether it be political or social political things. And so, um, and we start talking, I'll get their viewpoint and I don't, I don't fight. I'll just say, well, why do you feel that way? Well, some people would say blah, 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 blah. So what is your view on that? Oh, that's bullshit. Blah, 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 blah. And so I'm recording the whole time and not for any particular piece, but I'm just like keep, keeping that at the back of my mind um, for maybe I'll use it somehow just to understand. And I really did. I went out of my way to try and understand when Trump was elected because I just, I realized I woke up like a lot of people did. I knew this was all racism was the undercurrent of American, you know, the way we operate basically and how we got here. Um, but I was still somewhat, I guess I believed all the pundits and all the polls that we were going to have a Democrat in the White House, and we didn't. And um, this was a blatant reaction to Obama's presidency for eight years. And so I wanted to go and just understand. Uh, so I went out of my way to listen to podcasts that I would never listen to. for like a, I did this for like two years. Ben Shapiro was number one on my list of people I listened to. Um, mm -hmm. Tried Alex Jones, just too insane. Um, but there are a lot of like um, YouTube channels I would uh, listen to on their um, their videos or whatever, just to see how they would report on a story. And then I would go to the far left, and then I would go to the moderates. And so then you start to get a picture of how people view America and the different stories and how we can all be manipulated. When I would, one thing I discovered was that, say for instance, you have the far left podcast you had the far right podcast and they would report on the same story. Each one would leave out interesting details to, to strengthen their argument. You know, they did it more so on the far right, of course. Um, I shouldn't say of course, but they did. Um, but uh, far left would leave out some details too, or they would just like downplay them. And, um, but I was like, wow, uh, interesting. And I remember being in Europe several years ago and watching their newscasts and how they report on American issues. And I would just sit there just mesmerized. And my aunt would say, why are you watching the news? Why are you watching about America? I just want to see how you guys report on our news. It's so much, un it's so unbiased, you know? <laughs> it's just the straight facts, you know? <laughs> yeah, and it's like, wow. I, maybe, was it ever this way here? But I don't know. Um, and so you start to like, when you create a character like Matt, who is um, a white liberal type, um, um, but comes from a very, very, I guess, family who's somewhat racist. Um, and he has to confront his own racism in this moment with his black girlfriend, Melanie. I, it was hard for me. It went hard for me because that's a lot of people I know. Um, like I said, that was triggered by a, um, uh, an experience I ex that's something I went through myself um, but then there's the other the corporate businessman who's really far left uh, but hides it very well in corporate America um, those are people I knew it was a composite of you know, it was a, you know, a combination of various people that I knew and some other research I did so to complete that character and then I had a, a kick-ass dramaturg who would tell me you know this is a little bit caricaturish this line um, and I would say, okay, yeah, okay, let me change that. And even the actor too, you know, in the late stages of it would tell me, oh God, you got my friends down, oh my God, you know? So um, it was, um, I took it all in and just used it, so. Yeah, the character in the date, um, 
you know, he was, and you're right, you know, when we, when we do see like a racist character on stage, he's almost like a caricature or like a cartoon. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, you yeah. immediately don't feel anything for that person. You're like, ah, he's just, you know, annoying racist person. But you, I mean, you created this character that was so comfortable and had a very strong belief system. Yeah. And I remember, uh, I remember just hearing that for the first time and just seeing that character. It was just the discomfort that just went through the audience. Because you I know why? That person was so real. Yeah. And I, it, it, for it to work, you have to like him. He can't just be a straight villain. He can't just be evil. Right. He has to be funny. You have to relate, be able to relate. You have to like some aspect. You have to like some some part of him, and the audience does. And I think that's why it's disturbing because you do, even though you hate him in the end, he's funny. You've seen this really sexist, misogynistic guy who's super charming, and he's very nice to her and um, to the date, to the woman he's out with. But he puts her down. He's very, very. He uses a lot of microaggressions in the date, and so it's. Um, he, uh, and I think that's what's the most disturbing for people because he kind of charmed you into liking him. And then you find out that he's a, a creep, you know? <laughs> um, he's got some really disturbing beliefs and you probably won't ever, ever change him. And that's disturbing to people, you know, because this is your next door neighbor. This is your uncle. This is your, might be elements of your, uh, your boyfriend. You know what I mean? Um, who said a few things under his breath or at times when in, in the heated um, situation and then said, oh, I didn't mean that or whatever. You don't know. And so that makes you uncomfortable, I think, because he's so recognizable and he's not a cartoon. He's someone you probably deal with every day and just ignore the things he says. Mm. Um, so I was very proud of that character. So, um, and when she throws a drink on him at the end of the play, um, um, some nights she got applause <laughs> because she represented the audience who wanted to basically smack that guy down. Um, and his parting line uh, was hilarious. But I had a lot of time. I had a fun with all of them, um, all of the pieces. Um, they all challenged me in different ways. And it was one of the most rewarding exhilarating experiences in my life. I, I forgot to say earlier that I was writing, directing, and acting, and um, I was working around the clock because I was also teaching full-time at the same time while rehearsals or whatever. And I, yeah, I didn't, I lost sleep. I was sleeping like four or five hours a night for about six months. I didn't care because I was doing everything I've ever dreamed of doing and they were paying me to do it. So I didn't have to compromise or hardly have to compromise anything. Seth and Lee, who are the co-artistic directors of the Barra Group, just basically let me go. They let me fly and it was amazing. And I mean, they had, uh, we would have note sessions, like uh, we had maybe two notes sessions where they would look at current versions of the script after I'd rewritten it and they would give me their notes. And they said, you can incorporate these or not. Um, a lot of times I did because they were very good notes. Um, other times I didn't. As far as the production, they let me go. They pushed back on a couple of things. And because um, they're artistic directors, they have to sign off and everything. I totally understood that. And there was only one or two times where I absolutely pushed back. I said, no no, that's the show. I have to, I'm, I'm keeping that. And they would say, okay, fine. Um, and I'm glad I did. But other times, you know, we would make compromises, which I wasn't, I wasn't uh, afraid to do or didn't feel I was losing. 
you know, bending a little bit more in their direction in terms of things, in terms of the technical aspects of the show. Um, but yeah, they were, they've been my mentors for 20 years, them along with Lenore Coven. So, um, and uh, I valued their input, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I do have a question about the setup of the stage. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I found really interesting. So you had the actors watching on the side. What was the choice? Yeah, it was sort of like a mini thrust stage where, you know, there was proscenium, you know, whatever. It's like, well, the actors came out. We had like this amazing, um, well, in the readings, um, I didn't know how to, I didn't want it to seem like a scene night, you know? So there's nine little, I think in the readings we may have had, it went from eight plays, eight little vignettes to 10 at one point. Um, then it went back down to nine or whatever. Um, I didn't want it to seem like scene night. Oh, you know, here's the next scene. Here's the next 10 minute play. Like, you know, you see a, which is fine, but I didn't want that to be this. I wanted the whole evening to be an experience for the audience. And so when we did the first readings, I just had this idea right before we went on to have the actors divided and put a group of chairs in the middle of the stage and have two rows on the sides lining the walls. And so we would sit there the entire time. Then it was our time to go on stage. We would kind of go to those chairs. That's how the reading was. And I, when I met with Shika Shimizu, this amazing um, production designer that I hired, um, who was recommended to me by a couple of people. Um, she interviewed me and said, well, how did the readings go? How did you do the readings? And I told her. And so she incorporated that into her set design. And so she came with this amazing stage, which on the floor, I don't know if you saw, you had to be sitting high enough to see. It was a distressed American flag, mm-hmm. you know, and and these set pieces that were these chairs and with the actors come in and this huge like mess of like metal and wood on the stage and this chair stacked on top of each other in this weird like configuration it's almost like an art piece and then in a blast the actors come in this is the actual show the actors come in and they dismantle the chairs and then we take our site we put the chairs on either side of the stage um where the stage is elevated and we're on the side of the floor. So the actors have to stay there the entire time of length of the show. There was an intermission, so we got a break. But it was very important for me. We kept that part of it because, number one, we didn't want it to seem like it was a scene night. Um, And it was going to be experienced from the beginning to the end. And so the actors sort of uh, became like jurors you know, in a way, watching each um, little um, case go up, basically, if you want to call it that. Um, and they were spectators, became spectators. Sometimes they laughed, sometimes they didn't, you know what I mean? Um, but I gave them instructions to not move. For it to really work, they had to be like statues almost. And if they, if it, you know, and in between shows, in between little plays, they would, some certain actors uh, would run up and reconfigure the stage for the next setup and then take another seat, take a seat back, go back to their seats or go to a different seat. And so that became very fun. Um, it wasn't fun convincing the actors to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, they didn't want to do it. No, well, it, they had to get used to sitting there still okay. for two hours because once, if anyone moved across their legs or anything during a performance of someone on stage, your, the audience's eye will go right to that person on the side. 
So they get a chance to move around and just during the scene changes. But once the, the new play started, you had to sit frozen. So they got used to it after a while. And a lot of them thanked me afterwards for that experience because that, they got to see. Because a lot of times when you do those like scene nights, you don't get to see an experience to play with the audience. This time you do. You know, and you got to see your fellow actors transform every night and grow with their characters and grow with the pieces and become more and more comfortable in front of the audience. And it was amazing. Um, and so it really made us even tighter as a group because we were, it was, um, it made us a family and we were presenting the show as a family, as a unit. And it wasn't individual actors. It, everyone got their moment to shine. You know, but we were all cheering each other on. And so I don't regret that at all. And so it added to um, the immediacy of the piece, I think, you know, or the experience of the audience. Because they, at first, once they realized the actors were never going to leave the stage or on the sides, they were fascinated by that. And then they just kind of blended into the, the scenery. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I remember being so fascinated by that when I saw that for the first time. And there's something fascinating and also eerie about it because yeah. I feel, I mean, the timing of this, you know, oh, this play is so great because all these issues that are arising in this country, um, I feel like, I feel a sensation that the whole world is watching, right? Yeah. And I just feel like, I remember seeing Awake and seeing the actors sitting there. It just gave me that sensation. Like, yes, everyone's seeing these problems now. Everyone's watching. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny now because a lot of the issues that I, that we were um, shining um, a bright light on made people uncomfortable. It really did. This was 2019. Now, just about everything, a year, year and a half later, just about everything that we were, um, <laughs> that we were um, putting forth, any issue that has come to the, you know, forefront, you know, to the, to the national, uh, national discussion of some sort, whether it's especially police brutality, um, the immigration issue, um, um, gun, gun violence, all of that stuff is in, um, have become major talking points in um, our national uh, discourse. So that's, um, it's interesting. I get calls all the time for people to, we should revive it, put it on Zoom or something. We need it. And I'm like, I, I do think it's relevant now, but I think right now it would be preaching to the choir. These were taboo topics to put on stage at that time, even in 2019. Even though a lot of off-Broadway plays were doing it, um, other things, but not like we were because mm -hmm. we were tackling so much at once. Um, and, I, and it was important for me to just have conversation starters, to just dip my toe into that little that poison well for a little bit and then have you deal with the outcome however you felt however you wanted to um when you went home and i got so many emails afterwards and phone calls of people saying to me i've been wanting to have this discussion with my family the for all these years about different issues that were brought up in that show and we did after your play so thank you mm -hmm. um, and so that would relate that to the actors because um, I wasn't, I wrote it, but yeah, and directed it, but the actors helped me bring it to life. And so that was relieving. And we had this kind of, I think the marketing director at, at Barrow Group, Emily, um, forget her last name. She had this great idea where she put up uh, where people could write their thoughts about the show. 
um, on a bulletin board afterwards. What are your thoughts about Awake? And I was terrified. I was like, oh my God, people are gonna rip the show apart. And they did it. And so she says, you have to be brave enough. You gotta put this out there. Be brave enough to hear what people have to say about it. And so it was full of just thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I, I have the, you know, just all kinds of things. Um, not one negative post. If there was, I didn't see it, you know? Um, and it was hundreds of them. And it was very, very moving to see that. And I had to let my guard down and just say, okay. Um, because I was nervous at first because I'm, I'm dealing with a lot. And, um, but the people, the response for it was tremendous, more than I can ever hope for. So, but I am working on a sequel to it um, for the Zoom platform. It would be more like a film, but it's, so all the issues in Awake were things that people were afraid to talk about. And I still think even though we're talking about things, we're not really getting deep enough, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for about three weeks after the George Floyd protests and the Black Lives Matter protests all over the world, I'll say the world, you know, I joked with a friend of mine. I said, I'd never seen my Instagram so black. <laughs> there were so many posts, which was moving. Yeah. And so, like, just people in, you know, protesting and, like, you know, sharing information. White, black, brown, everybody was doing it. We were all in it together. But, you know, life goes on and you start to see less of them, you know? Yeah. You know, I, I want to ask, I mean, I have a few more questions. Yeah. I want to ask about that because that, that's something that really breaks my heart. Yeah. Past couple of years and now even, you know, it, it's just, yes, I'm a huge, I'm, I mean, I'm all about, um, you know, like peace activism. I'm all about conversation. Yeah. I'm all about talking about it, educating each other, so on and so forth. But when, at what point does maybe not even a uh, change, but action happens because I do, I do love that awake does challenge you to think, you know, think more than just your side of the story, but just yeah. of, of other levels and, and start the conversation and not to be fearful of, of having that conversation, but what happens next, you know? And, and it's kind of a question of like, even with uh, awake's future, it's like, what, what's, what happens next with it? Because you have all these like open-ended um vignettes they don't have solutions to it right and it's kind no. of happening now too it's like everyone's coming out of the woodwork but there's still no like solution either you know yeah i don't know if the next version will have a solution i think it, it might some of them might be but everyone's got different solutions you can mm-hmm. you know everyone doesn't feel the same way um i think uh for me i say work on yourself if there's something in you that you need to change start educating yourself start um reading books read your history i'm even reading rereading some of my own history i've been studying african-american history since um first year of college i think um uh, and realizing how i was duped from grade one through you know 12 and so educating myself and i hung around a lot of people that were older than me and so they would give me books to read i'm going back to those books and rereading them i'm reading um other books and i tell my uh friends start with yourself and then start with the close people that are closest to you because you have to start with yourself first you can't preach to someone else if you're not doing that yourself so um in terms of change um on a deeper level, on uh, I want people to vote. I think um, you have to if you want to see things change. Do I think Biden and Harris are going to change things significantly? No, but they will buy us some time. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, they will, you yeah. know? And so I'm putting my hat in that ring. 
to get behind them because what other choice do I have? I can't, you know, because I think I heard a speech recently, Marianne Williamson said, um, she said these first four terms, terms of uh, Donald Trump were Donald Trump holding back. Mm. He gets another four, he's going to be on steroids, you know, <clears throat> you know, so just think about that. Um, so I'm doing whatever I can to get people out to vote. And I hear, I say that and people say, well, you knew New York always goes blue. What are you, what are you going to do? I'm like, you don't know that, you know, you can't trust that. I, I don't care. You have to get people to vote. Still keep talking about voting, voting, getting absentee ballot. If you don't want to go to the, you know, in person, do whatever you can. So I'm doing my part. So, and also as an artist to continue to work because it's, it's really nauseating and disheartening and just filled with rage every day to see another black man brutally attacked and some and killed and um, by police. And that just, sometimes I don't even look at the news. I just don't. I say, oh, what video are they showing now? Oh, someone else. And then I can't even look at it. So, because I'll get so enraged. And so that has to, um, I don't know. That has to stop. Um, I didn't get teary. I didn't even think about it. But I, I do my part as a, a human being, but also do my part as an artist and to challenge people and to get inspired people and empower people to to make go out and make change. And that's what I continue to do. And I think that's what I was put here to do. And that's well, why I was here. And that's what the work will continue to do. Even you can even do it through comedy. You know what I mean? So I think it's sometimes important to laugh. That's just me. Not every artist has to do that, but that I know that's my... Um, that's why I was put here. So that's what I'm going to continue to do. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I think what you're mentioning too, is it's like a lot of these things that are happening in our country is so normalized. You know, I saw that in, um, in, in the play, uh, in flowers, you know, it's, you know, what she's uh, going through, it's in what she's trying to express, um, that character. And it's, it's interesting because the world that she was living is normalized, but it's not supposed to be, it shouldn't be normal. That she was just you mean other uh, black woman that gets yeah. the police police called her? That was basically a Karen situation. <laughs> I called Sandra. Sandra was the woman who did that monologue, and I said, yeah. "You know, your friend did the um in the um in that uh that you talk about that called the cops on you. You know, it's kind of like a Karen situation, you know, yeah. or someone felt that she was being threatened or whatever because you have a disagreement, and she says, "Oh my God, you're right." So there's probably going to be a sequel to that, maybe in the in that the aftermath of that of them recon, um, reconnecting. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know what it's going to be yet. I'm am making sketches of the piece, but I'm going to take my time with it. Um, it might not premiere until next year, you know, because we need to get through 2020 first. It's going to be a reflection on 2020 because this has been a year from hell, but also a year of um, strange enlightenment. I say in terms of like the the time you spend alone has been very important for people getting to know yourself a bit and people who've taken the time to do that um, and realizing that all the things I thought were important are not really as important as I thought they were, mm. you know? Um, it's amazing. Um, and I've changed and for the better, I think in these last six months for the much, I'm much calmer. I'm much more um, thoughtful. I'd like to think of myself as always being that, but even more so now. And I listen better, uh, trying to, you know? Um, and it's just been 
it's done good things for me. I know that everyone can't say that, but for me, it's been a good thing. And I've been a lot more reflective and not have stopped beating myself up so much for things I haven't accomplished yet. Um, and just become more patient, you know? Mm-hmm. And when I took on that, uh, when I started adopting those things or started to challenge the way I viewed or operated, things started to happen in my life, you know, just in these six months, really positive things that I've been waiting on for years. Um, so it's been really good for me, but uh, I'm still going to continue to work and um, challenge people with my heart. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, what about for you? I, uh, what about for me? <laughs> How have you been? So, I know you were interviewing me, but I'm always curious about the person that's interviewing me. Like what, how have you changed? So first of all, I do have one more question for you about, okay. but before I get into that, cause it does go on to something else, but, um, you know, it's, it is interesting what you're saying. First of all, everything you're saying about working on yourself, I really admire that and appreciate the fact that you're doing that because I feel that, you know, all of humanity needs that. And I think people fear going yeah. in. I really do feel that. And it is scary. It's a scary thing to do, to be alone and to look inward and to work on yourself. It's a lot of work, you know, and, and a lot of levels you got to go through and a lot yeah. of, you know, revelations. <laughs> but yeah. um, you come out on the other side and you just gain so much out of it. And for me, you know, the when COVID happens and the quarantine happened, I did go through a really dark, depressive time. Yeah, and, I think a lot of people did, yeah. Yeah, I think the energy of it, you know, I mean, yeah. it's going to happen, but it did teach me to slow down and really reflect and to really understand why everything was happening the way it's supposed to happen. And I really, really do believe, I mean, this is a probably horrible thing to say because a lot of people did suffer and lose a lot and I'm so grateful yeah. that I haven't, but... I do believe that things happen for a reason. And mm-hmm. if this didn't happen this year, I think people would have continued to just, you know, yeah. go about what they were doing in the first place and just continue being angry versus actually taking action. Because I feel like this year is, is really about pushing people to, to, to take action, to, to yeah. Not just even make changes, but even with your own self and your own community and your own family, it's like, all right, it's, t- it's time to move. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, or else we're just going to keep repeating ourselves, you know? And um, yeah, it, it definitely taught me a lot. And I, I guess what I want to ask you, because it kind of goes into like the future of like what's happening now. Um, obviously, the rest of 2020 is <laughs> still going on and who knows what's going to happen in the next few months and theater is not going to go up. Or who knows no, probably probably not till next spring, or you know, or probably twenty twenty, late twenty twenty one or twenty twenty two. I don't know. Sorry, excuse me. Um, um, but yeah, I don't. I don't know. Yeah, and I feel like your your story. I mean, or your vignettes of awake really challenges people to look inward and to question themselves. But you have more of like a New York audience, I would say. Is that correct? Yeah, 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 very much so. A lot of people said that you should really travel with this. You should take it to the Midwest. You should yeah. take it to... I was just going to um, ask you if you were thinking of that because I feel like I feel like what, what's interesting about Awake is that, again, you're not making people choose sides. You're having them think about other issues in their lives that they're afraid to yeah. face, mm-hmm. right? And I feel like a lot of New Yorkers are okay with taking that challenge. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. 
people like in the Midwest, for example, you know, or like yeah. small towns or smaller cities. I mean, you may have that too, but not as much as like New Yorkers. I mean, is that something that you are considering doing? Yes, um, probably with the next piece. There might be some pieces from Awake incorporated into this next piece, which I'm making for the Zoom platform. But I want it to be like a film that could travel or people could go to quote-unquote screenings of, mm -hmm. which is happening now on Zoom. I think uh, people are doing screenings of, like here in New York, I know they're doing play readings and you have to sign up and you can only, a certain amount of people can go in. But I'm thinking of doing this thing where um, since we don't know the future of theater um, right now. I'm optimistic, but what can we do in the meantime? And I do, a lot of people hate the Zoom platform, but, but because I've been teaching on it for six months, like a lot, I have become interested in what, you can, what can be done on it. And I think it's gonna be with us long after the pandemic and it's gonna be another form of expression. And I think we're in the beginning stages of it. It's like the wild, wild west and people just trying things and sometimes falling flat on their faces, but sometimes quite beautiful. And I've had to put a couple of interviews where I've discussed this recently. And there was a, um, my friend Philip and his wife, Michelle, Philip and Michelle, um, um, in German, Germany, in Berlin, they have a film company slash theater company called Film Gym. And they did a piece, a play that Philip wrote and they did it live. And it wasn't like some of the Zoom readings that I'd seen where people just staring into the camera or slightly off the camera. This was blocking everything. And so the characters were all, actors were all in different places and there was lighting and all, it was crazy. And so it was amazing. Half of it was in English, half of it was in German. Maybe two thirds were in English, two thirds in German. And I was riveted. Yeah. And I said, this is amazing. And I've seen some amazing things done with the platform. And so, yes, it has a, it has a uh, there is a bit of a wall there, but how can we work around that wall so you feel connected? And so write things specifically for the platform, not pretend you're somewhere else. You're not pretending you're on stage, but it's not a film, so don't try to make it a film, but it could be, I'm experimenting with it. And so, so to keep people engaged, and so, but to touch on these issues. And I think in able to do it, it has to be in bite-sized chunks. Um, and so that's what I'm doing. And so hopefully that is something that can travel, quote unquote, travel, and people all over can see and talk about maybe. That's what I'm working on in the meantime. I'm also working on my next film, um, which we hope to go in the next year. But yeah, that's what I'm hoping to do with Awake or the Awake next, the next Awake-like project is just experiment and see what I can do with it. But it'll still be very, very relative, relevant uh, issues. The only thing with um, the Zoom platform is you can check out, you know, or you can like um, stop it if it's recorded, pre-recorded or whatever. But, you know, you do what you can. So um, there's, that's what's missing. Uh, when you do that, it doesn't really replace your live theater experience in that way because you're sort of stuck in this dark room with people and whether you like the play or not, you're there experiencing it with them. That's a beautiful thing. I don't think you'd ever, um, um, you can ever replace. But I am embracing change and embracing this new platform to see what I can do with it. And I think it's one of those things because I have an extensive film background, extensive theater background. So it's one of those things where those two can come together really in a very unique way. So I'm very excited about what we're gonna discover with this next piece, so.
Yeah, that's exciting. I'm glad that you're still continuing the journey with Awake. Um, yeah. By the way, I do want to comment that I I really do hope that you do bring back that um, that vignette you were talking about with uh, racism in the South Asian community. Because oh yeah, it was a monologue. It was uh, hands. Yeah, that one. Yeah. Yeah, I just feel like it's funny because you met when um, when that came about. Well, yeah, when, when thinking about hands, like I, I just being a Trinidadian American, you know, being West Indian, yeah. like there's so much racism packed <laughs> within my culture, my background, and yeah, I remember seeing when I when I saw Awake, I was like, wow, there is a lot more to unpack. Yeah. You know, it's like, and I think it's very interesting about Away because, you know, you, it is vignettes and like, you know, there there are more levels to it, but it's like, oh my God, there's, I think in every community or just any generation, there's just so much more to yeah. and discover and, um, you know, it would be really interesting to see, I guess, what happens next. It will, it will, it will come back, but probably not, it may be a continuation of that story, but another story yeah. um, that, um, because... I think we started to talk about these things, but then the conversation has stopped or gone underground, maybe. I don't know. Maybe the conversations are still happening. But I think uh, I think people are now just focused on the election and seeing what's, what our future is really going to be. I think there's a lot of fear. Uh, I know I'm nervous because I don't know. Um, I'm nervous. And if it's, it, I know. Um, and I'm not ashamed to say that or afraid to say that, that I'm nervous, I'm scared because I don't know I know the people around me, how we're voting, but I can't, I don't know how the rest of the country is going to vote. Um, Cause last time we thought they were gonna vote a certain way and it did not happen that way at all. Even though he only won by a handful of votes, but still. Um, um, I don't know because if he gets another four years and who knows, it may be more than that, but cause he's talking 12, he might find a way to make that happen. And he gets uh, houses in his favor, we are, fucked and I'm, I'm sorry i don't know if i can curse on your podcast but no wonder way to explain it i am whoa i don't know what i'll do i don't know um meaning like i don't know if i could stay here yeah and you know i find a way out find a job overseas or something i don't know <laughs> i don't know i could do it the only thing keeping me here now would be my family but i'm like mom i gotta go <laughs> Uh, you know, um, I can I'll fly back home at Christmas or something, you know, you know, uh, but I can't. So we'll see. I'm optimistic. I very am. I very much am, but I, I am also fearful at the same time. Cautiously optimistic. Is that what you say? I yeah, I, I would say I feel the same way. You know, back in 2016, I did not believe that Hillary was going to win. I really believe You didn't. Wow. No, I, I had a feeling. I was like, I was like, something's up. Something's wrong. And the funny thing is, is. I mean, this is going off topic, but I remember telling my parents that early in the year, it was like around springtime, I remember thinking, oh my God, Trump is going to win. And my father was like, no, Keisha, he's not. That's stupid. Why do you think that? Come on. He's not going to win. Like, my dad was downplaying it so much. And then when he won, I, my my dad was so quiet because he was just like, I guess he was just in shock, you know? And I, I... I was just like, I told you, I, I, you know, the fact that he came this far, there's something really eerie about this. And, yeah. and there's something wrong with our, our, our entire political system. I mean, there's, there's so much, there's so many things that are, you know, <clears throat> that haven't been addressed in this country. And I just feel like having Trump as president kind of brings out all, all of that dirtiness that America, 
America has in the past, you know, in, in its history. And it's been there from the beginning. Yeah. yeah. It's been there from the beginning. And I just feel like, <clears throat> like, yes, I didn't believe that, you know, she was going to win back in 2016. And I'm fearing now that, you know, same thing's going to happen all over again. But, you know, again, also being optimistic as well, I do feel as though there's so much garbage that America has. <laughs> Yeah. And there's, there's so much like sickness and like, you know, um, so much dirty history and bloody history that America has that yeah. hasn't really been addressed fully. I don't know if it ever will. I mean, they, they start indoctrinating us into this belief system in, in kindergarten. Um, one of the people I like to listen to or sometimes is um, Jane Elliott. You know, if you ever watch her videos, she said, you know, I think she's amazing. She's doing God's work, I think. Um, um, she's this, like, diversity educator. And um, she um, um, is the real deal. And I think we've been taught that uh, from the get-go since um, grade school. Um, the, a certain way to look at history. And then you discover, you get to college where your, challenge, your views are challenged. Depending on what school you go to, I know mine were by friends that I, you know, again, people I've met and other books were shoved into my hands. And I was like, well, this is the real history. This is what they didn't tell you. And so now I started re-educating myself. And just in the last, I think probably in the last five years, five to six years, I've started actively re-educating myself by going back, like I said earlier in our talk, going back to those old books that I that I read in my African-American history studies classes and then reading new ones and other, you know, um, certain writers, new writers that have come on the scene and just staying um, informed and educating myself even more than I, you know, have in the past. And my book reading list is like insane. Um, and I'm just devouring books around the clock. So it's, cause I think not only will it help me, but it will also help my art. Mm -hmm. so I know the stories that need to be told so yeah yeah I, I also I also really believe that we can't move forward unless we really address what's really going on you know and I, I to circle this back to awake <laughs> you know yeah. that's, that's exactly how I felt when I saw um the end connection right because yeah um they couldn't move forward unless they really addressed what was really happening and I yeah and you don't yeah I was just going to say, I feel like that really, that hap that's, that's so relative and that happens in reality is that we talk about these things over and over again, but we can't move forward unless we really address what's really, truly, truly deeply in its roots, what it's really, what's really happening. Yeah. Some people asked me after they saw that particular play, they said, you know, um, do they get back to get, do they get together? Do they work through it? I said, that's up to you to decide. You're the audience. You can create the ending yourself. I just kind of leave it. She does, she, she decides not to go to the party with him that night. And, um, and, but you don't know if he ends up going or, or what, um, or if he does, if he stays there with her, it's kind of left open-ended. So, um, <laughs> so you don't know what the, what the outcome of that situation is going to be. Does he go deeper and decide to confront his uncle or not, you know, um, because that's deep thing, because that was an excuse I heard from a lot of people. It's like, yeah, my parents use this stuff. I, they say racist things around me and I just ignore it sometimes, but it gets exhausting correcting them all the time because this is how they grew up. And I'm like, that's not an excuse. If you're silent, you're complicit. Mm. How do you think I feel? If you, you think that's exhausting for you? How about me every day of my life? 
If you're silent, <laughs> you're, you're inducing violence. That's how I see exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly see it. You know. So deal with the uh, deal with the um, the uncomfortable um, atmosphere or the um, deal with the conflict. Basically, yeah. um, if you know, whenever you have to, just take it on and just and you'll be a better person for it. And the world will be better too. But a lot of people don't have that energy. I don't want to do that. They just rather pretend they didn't hear something or see something. Yeah. And I think they're convincing <laughs> themselves that they, in their minds that, you know, I didn't really see that or that person will change or I can't change them. What's the point? You know? I, I would love to ask you more and more questions, but again, like I do, I do keep the podcast a little uh, tight because, <laughs> you know, people have short attention yeah. spans, so you know how that goes. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, but uh, Laurel, thank you so much for, for answering my questions and going deep with the way because it just, it was super helpful and I love talking about these things. And I really, really do appreciate what you brought on stage. I do have to say uh. that. And I really mean that. And I actually brought my boyfriend, Frank, to watch it. And even he was just moved, you know? So oh, wow. I, by the way, uh, that, that moment when on the date when she does um, spill the drink on him or, or throw the drink yeah. on him. He turned to me and he said, she did that for all of us. Yeah. Yeah. He, and I'm like, yep. <laughs> awesome. Great. Um, yeah. I, I just, you know, I'm really, I'm really happy to see this because I just feel like it's, it's just so important. And I'm sure people have told you that as well. How important. Yeah. That was, uh, that was the feedback. It was all mostly positive. I mean, I think someone wrote in a site of what else, those people are like, it was all about bashing white people. I'm like, well, you're going to have that. So whatever, yeah. bring it on. So. <laughs> It was a lot less of that than I thought there would be, but um, but um, people really got a lot of it because I say I, me, and Christine, my dramaturg, and uh, the cast worked really, really, really hard, and um, so we were very, very proud of that. There's still there's still group chats that they're on, you know, occasionally, you know, that we're on together because that really bonded us. And people have gone into other shows and films and whatever, but they still we still communicate with each other because it was a very, very rewarding experience for all of us. Thank you so much for listening to Laurel's Journey with Awake. Don't forget to follow the Dark Brown channel for more information about Awake and future episodes on the Every Shade podcast. 